Welcome to the Brant and Sherry Oddcast, sponsored by Fellowship Home Loans. To order Brant's latest book, The Men We Need, or to stream Sherry's play, The Bold and the Sanctified, go to BrantHanson.com. Welcome to another special podcast here. It's an interview with Patrick Miller. He's one of the co-authors for a book called Truth Over Tribe, uh, along with Keith Simon. Truth Over Tribe. And it has some donkeys and elephants on the cover and a lamb in between them. And it says, pledging allegiance to the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. I really appreciated this book. I don't agree with everything in there, but that's kind of the point. Um, And I really enjoyed talking with Patrick. I'm not feeling real good. So if you're like, wow, he's even slower on the draw than usual, um, that's why. But I still think it's a really good conversation. I hope you enjoy it. It's lengthy, longer than usual, but hey, I thought, you know, if it's too long, you just opt out. (laughs) So that's that's fine. I enjoyed it. Uh, So anyway, the following is our uh, pretty unstructured conversation about the book Truth Over Tribe with Patrick Miller. Um, I'm totally grooving with you on this book. That's why I wanted to do this interview. I don't do, we don't do many on the podcast. Um, so by the way, I'm talking to Patrick Miller. The book is called truth over tribe, pledging allegiance to the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. Um, so is it out yet? I have the advanced. It is officially out. It is. it's, It's available at every major bookseller now, but you got one of those rare advanced reader copies. I I feel blessed and I appreciate that. <laughs> so I'm, so I highly recommend it, and you can uh, you, you can get together with people and study it, and everybody can buy multiple copies of it. And I I think it's a good idea, but it's like as I was reading, I'm like I think you and I and you have a co-author on this, Keith. Yeah, Keith Simon. Yeah, we're totally vibing together. Like I feel like we're reading the same stuff and um listening to the same stuff, like. You're quoting Mark Sayers. I'm a huge fan. Mm. Uh, Jonathan Haidt. I'm a huge fan. Um, yep. I think you even have Bama podcast stuff in there. Is that correct? <laughs> I, I, we we might have had something from from Bama in there. We're we're actually going to go onto Bama's podcast as well to talk about some of those topics. So we're, we are we are totally grooving with each other. I love yeah. Jonathan Haidt. I read one of his books about once a year. I know that sounds really weird. It's like I read the Bible and Jonathan Haidt. Those are my two once a year books. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like this agnostic or atheist. I don't know. Like, but he's in New York University. Yeah, um, and he kind of reminds me of those old. Uh, english elites from the 1700s who who said you know i don't believe in religion but i think that religion is good for the populace and so i'm for it in, in kind of a vague abstract way and that's yeah. really what his book the righteous mind is, is is all about and so i totally disagree with him yeah. <laughs> in terms of his view of god and yet he's he, he's a he's a social psychologist who has really strongly and clearly articulated not only why religion is valuable for individual life and for society um, but how it can be a a detribalizing force or a tribalizing force in in the inverse his book the righteous mind again i can't i cannot recommend it enough well i i do too in fact it inspired me to write a book i wrote a book called the truth about us and it was about how how so like these cognitive psychologists are coming to the conclusion that we're just so deluded about our own moral goodness yeah and and i'm like they're echoing jesus like he's calling out our self-righteousness like i just find that fact like that's our biggest problem yeah so height puts his finger on it and he's so intellectually honest like i so appreciate that and he he even identifies that his his 
political tribe. And he's been a Democratic Party um, guy. He's been a consultant. But he's like, you guys can't articulate your opponent's viewpoint. But yes. but they can they can identify what you're thinking and feeling. But you every time you sum it up, you can't even do it. Your opponents. I just find that really intellectually interesting. Oh, it's so fascinating. I, I love it when social scientists come to conclusions that ancient wisdom found millennia ago. And, and I don't oh, love it. Like, see, we, we were always right. It, it just it just proves that the digger or sorry, the deeper you dig in, the closer you get to the truth, to the truth that Jesus had. And that point that you made about liberals, and that's why he was a consultant was because he realized there are uh, multiple dimensions of morality and virtue, yes. human experience. And he realized that that liberals in particular were only appealing to a very narrow band of those. And it's actually been really fascinating fascinating to me to watch in the last few years they have begun to appeal to a wider band um one of the things he talks about by the way is is purity or maybe what we would want to call holiness but it's a notion that that there are some things which are profane to do there are some things which are pure and purifying and if you think about covid and what happened during covid yes. through the lens of purity you'll right. begin to realize that that I, I think it scratched a deep itch especially for for people on the left because they hadn't had purity as a category in their moral framework and the minute they were able to bring purity in through the covid and, and i'm not like some anti-vax uh, vax denier guy so i don't, I don't want people to get the right, oh, right, <laughs> right, right from me it was but it was fascinating to watch because the right has had a sense of purity for for, for longer than the left has so I, I think that's actually one reason they didn't gravitate so tightly to the masking mandates and, and some of that kind of stuff was because th that that itch was already being scratched elsewhere yeah i think you're right that's interesting i hadn't thought about it that way um so let's talk about your book here i just wanted to be like well we're like friends even though you don't know who I am, I think it's awesome. No, I do know who you are. I've, 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 I've enjoyed your, I've enjoyed your work. And um, if, if my book can only be half as successful as your book, <laughs> on essentially not being a tribalized jerk, <laughs> I'm going to be thrilled. Good. Well, thank you. So let's talk about something. Um, tribalism ruining relationships. You're exactly right. You mentioned a, 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 like a historical note. It seems like in just eons ago, but George W. Bush and Ellen hung out, Ellen DeGeneres, and Ellen was like, "No, I can hang out with whoever I want." That was really cool. Do you do you even think that's possible now? I don't think it's possible. I don't think she could do that now. I I, I mean, Ellen might just do whatever Ellen wants. It's what I love about comics, by the way, is, is that sometimes that uh, sacrilegiosity leads them in the right direction. So yeah, her refusal to play by the rules in that instance, she caught a lot of flack because she's sitting next to George W. Bush and Jerry Jones's uh, little executive suite at a Cowboys game. And what I loved about it is that it highlighted something. What we share in common is often far greater than what separates us. And in that instance, they're just two Texans who love the Cowboys enjoying a football game together. And that's what matters. It doesn't matter that he's a, a conservative evangelical ex-president who would be against her uh, marriage. It doesn't matter that she's LGBTQ. Like what, what matters there is this shared humanity, which in that sense, I mean, it's one thing I love about sports is it can bring people together who yeah. are divided. But the question that I always want to ask after thinking about that story, because she got so much flack for this, uh, quite frankly, a lot more than George W. Bush did. Uh, the question I want to ask is, is, is that the kind of society that we want to live in? I want to live in a society where I can 
go to the sports game with someone who sees the world entirely differently than me. And we can have a deep connective conversation where I get to know them. I get to care about them as a, as, as a human. I, I want to live in a society where I realize, you know what, uh, the, the person who brought me that meal uh, when my family was sick or when we had a baby, they might be the socialist that I hate. Or or the person who is serving at the soup kitchen and helping the homeless, that might be the Trump supporter that I despise. When you start to realize that humans are humans first and they are ideologies second, third, fourth or, or fifth or even later than that, it completely reframes how you uh, you know move and posture yourself in relationships. Yeah, uh, entirely. But it, it feels like it feels like. <sighs> I'm trying to think of a, a good way to say this, that once that the left is moving towards defining anyone who deviates from their orthodoxy as as Hitler. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, if I was going to do that, like anybody who opposes me is basically wants genocide. Yeah, you're That's Stalin, what, you're Mussolini. You're Stalin, yeah, <laughs> I, I just but but I, I don't. I don't know how to make relationships work in that case. Cause now I, if I have qualms about the leftist orthodoxy, I'm the worst kind of person. I can't, I don't know what to, I don't even know how to engage that. How much of that do you think is, is, is the media environment? Well, two things, a media environment and, and geographical sorting, because right now we do, most of us live in geographically sorted neighborhoods. I think it's something like 57% of Americans now live in what are called landslide counties, counties where right. the presidential candidate won by 20 points or more. And this is a massive difference because back in the early nineties, it was, it was in the twenties percent of Americans. And that means that a lot of us actually don't have relationships with people who don't share our political ideologies. And so I, I wonder, because again, once you're next to a fellow human and you build a relationship, it's it's actually pretty easy to build bridges unless you're just a total absolute jerk who, you know, can't make any compromises at all. You know, like if you're pathological, okay, I, you know, I don't know what to tell you. But I think the problem that you're highlighting is that in this media environment where people don't have those relationships, you're on the internet, you post this thing that questions, like you said, maybe the leftist or or the far right ideology, and people will come at you like you are a heretic or like you're Hitler. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is a big part of it. I, I had a conversation with a, a new friend who's a neighbor who's from Europe, and he was <laughs> he's just kind of he just landed in the US and he was like, he has this perception of Christians. Yeah. Evangelicals that based on uh Keith Olbermann's opinions. So here's this former ESPN, MSNBC guy. And uh I just said, I totally appreciate that. I want you to compare that, like as we're friends to your lived reality. Yeah. Like, I want I really want you to like so you know us now. So, <laughs> so, you you know a real life bona fide. Yeah, you totally I was like, and I also want you to know you can bring it to me. Like, if you have like, what in the world questions, like, come on, bring it. And we, we're having a blast. So oh, I love that. But, but you're exactly right. Again, compare what you think to your lived reality instead of, instead of getting ginned up against people. But if you don't know people, you're in Columbia. So that's a university town. Mm -hmm. Columbia, Missouri is where, is where Patrick lives. That's yeah. got to help, right? 
<laughs> it, it actually does help because we we are still living in one of the so, so let's start with the state missouri is a a republican state now it used to be a swing state it's not anymore we consistently vote for republicans but living in a college town as you can imagine our town leans progressive and the the suburbs and rural environments outside of it though they're still very republican which means that we aren't in a bubble there's actually a great little feature i, I, I might be able to find it and send it to you the new york times did this thing where you can put in your address and it will tell you in your neighborhood how politically diverse it is and again most neighborhoods are not politically diverse but where i live and where my co-host lives it's almost 50 50 yeah and what that means is that in our church ever since it started 20 years ago we've had cross-cutting relationships no one had a choice you're going to worship next to people who voted for someone else you were going to be in small group with someone who voted for someone else and when yeah. you get to know those people and understand why they voted the way they voted you know how their history their family experience their values were shaped you begin to realize oh you're not the caricature i thought you were right. you're a human and you've got right. some pretty good reasons I, I might disagree with them but they're not totally crazy right no you're 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 precisely right the, and, and jonathan height identifies that and the elephant rider thing but he's like the only thing that the only thing that helps people rethink which, which in christian terms that's repentance the only thing that helps people rethink is relationship yeah Nothing else does it because now your heart is toward me. And, and you identify this, especially later in the book, the truth over tribe against the name of the book, Patrick Miller's who we're talking to, but um, you identify this later on in the book. If we can ascribe positive motives to people, like if like I'm pro-life on, on the abortion issue, I don't think that people who are pro-choice are, th are are like scheming with their hands together, like going, ha I want to do some evil. No, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're thinking this is the best way to protect women or this is there's, I understand that. I would like that to be reciprocated to me, like to, to actually address my side of it. It's not often do they go, I, I understand what you're trying to do. You, you don't want this to happen to, to people, but but that changes how I interact with somebody who's pro-choice, right? So, so yeah. much, once you know somebody, talk about that a little bit about just presuming the best of somebody else's motives. I, I find that the easiest way for me to assume the best is to do several things. One is to reduce my own sense of self-certainty. The amount of things that I have wrong right are tremendous they're enormous and a hundred years from now when people look back on my life they'll, they'll probably be a lot more things than i realized <laughs> that i believed were correct and actually turned out to be desperately wrong now there's some things i have a high level of certainty about right i've yeah. got a high level of certainty that jesus died on a cross and and, and rose again but outside of that I, I have a sliding scale of certainty and, yeah. and that certainty should always correspond, by the way, to my own expertise, research and knowledge. One of the challenges that we face is uh, you are at your most confident about your knowledge when you are at your most amateurish. So if you know nothing, you will rate your knowledge as zero. Yeah. But if you know a little bit of something and there's it's called the the, the Dunning-Kruger effect has been studied widely, right. you will rate your knowledge, your, your understanding and comprehension of that area much higher than an actual field expert would. Yes. Field experts rate their knowledge appropriately. They understand this is where I rank. <laughs> I know yeah. there's these people who know more than me and these people who know less than me. And, and so, again, the first thing I do is, is I just want to have a little epistemic humility. I want to be able to say I don't know everything. And if I don't know everything. It makes me a curious person. It makes me the kind of person who wants to ask someone rather than, you know, 
why why are you pro-choice why why are you pro-choice that's really yeah. interesting you know if you can enter into that conversation with curiosity and by the way this is what jesus does with the woman at the well yes. you know and he can see inside of her heart i can't see inside of people's hearts <laughs> you know so 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 he already knows in some sense the answers to some of his questions he can see inside of her heart and he starts just asking her curious questions they get into a debate about ethics and and sex they get into a debate about uh, worship and where worship should happen. And it's not even really a debate. I mean, he's just asking her questions. And see, that's the second thing. It's like, I have to be less certain. And then number two, I need to be willing to ask questions. And when you ask questions, you might actually discover you were wrong or you had blind spots that you, you, you didn't realize. But if you don't ask questions, you're going to live in an echo chamber. You're never going to realize when you're wrong. And, and again, it's just the way I'm wired. I would far rather, I love finding out that I'm wrong. And it's for a very simple reason. Right. Because then I can know truth at the end, right? Look, if you live in a world that thinks that the uh, the sun revolves around the earth, you want to be proven wrong so that you can know for a fact that actually it's the other way around. The earth revolves around the sun. So there's nothing wrong with this confirmation, with admitting that you're wrong. I even have a section in there that I have caught a lot of flack for, where I talk about Jesus with a Syrophoenician woman, where he seems, to my view, to admit that he had a wrong take. You know, he's got this woman who comes up to him and he's in a different area. He's not in, he's not in Israel. He's in Syrophoenicia. And this woman comes up to him and says, hey, will you heal my daughter? And he says, no, you know, I'm here for the children. And she says, look, even the dogs get crumbs from the table of the children. So please, will you help me? And Jesus changes his mind. He tells her no. And then he tells her yes. Now, I, I'm not trying to get into what did Jesus know, not know. Th that's besides the point. My point is he said no. Then he said yes. Mm -hmm. He changed his mind. If Jesus, who knows all, can change his mind on something, how much more so should I, a fallible <laughs> creature, how much more should I be willing to change my mind when I'm in conversation with people, even people who, like the Syrophoenician woman who don't share my ethnic, national, or uh, religious beliefs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, it gets back to humility. So how do we work this in the church right now? I, I feel like I feel like it's really difficult for unity to happen. Well, obviously, this is why you wrote the book. But <laughs> yes, like how should people, if they're a part of a church where other people are taking political stands, how should they work that out with each other? Man, I, I, I think it's really challenging. Here's the thing. There's 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 one subset of people. So there's another book that came out that I, I, I liked. So I'm, I'm not trying to be critical of it by uh, Andy Stanley called Not In It to Win It. And what I liked is I think he's right, like you know what? Our chief calling is not to win elections, right? right. You know, Jesus is not going to come back and say, did you get the right person in the Oval Office? That guy is sitting on the throne of heaven. Getting a job in the Oval Office would be a demotion for him, you know? And so, yeah, let, let's maybe be a little less fixated. <laughs> let's get our priorities straight. Um, but one of the things about, about Andy's book, again, that I really enjoyed, but it's maybe a little bit different than our book is, you know, he, he's very much so got a... Um, our calling is to preach the gospel, to win souls to Jesus, get people into heaven. Let's just make that the main thing. And 
And I agree. I want to preach the gospel. I, I want to see conversions. I want to see people in the renewed creation and the resurrection, all of that. I'm going to say yes to that. And yet I do believe that the gospel is a politic. In fact, the word gospel is a very political world. It comes word. It comes from the field of right. politics and people don't always realize this. There was, you've talked about it on your podcast, but there's, there was an inscription found that was written in nine BC in Prien, And it's this inscription talking about Augustus Caesar, the Caesar at the time of Jesus's birth. And it describes, him in terms that we will recognize it says this is the gospel of the birth of caesar augustus and it says that he's the one who was the the peacemaker he brought peace to the world he was he's he is the son of god he Save. is the lord he yeah. is savior and, and now all of a sudden when you think about a jewish rabbi walking around roman occupied territory mm -hmm. saying that he has a different gospel of a different kingdom and that he is the peace bringer who is the lord who is the savior who is the son of god it's not hard to conceptualize why this guy was crucified it's not hard at all mm -hmm. and, and it's because he had an alternative politic to rome his politic is about loving your enemies. His politic is about forgiving those who sin against you. His politic is about uh, fidelity in marriage, in monogamy. His, 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 his politic is, is radically different than what you would have seen in Rome. And the reason why I bring this up is because you're like, hey, how do we navigate this in the church? I don't think that the answer to, hey, we've got political division in the church is let's just not talk about politics. Because if you don't want to talk about politics, you might as well stop talking about the gospel because the gospel is political, but the gospel is not partisan. And so that's where I think I would lean in and saying, okay, someone wants to have a political take, show curiosity, ask them questions, try to understand their perspective. But then as a second thing, I think it's okay once you've heard them out to say, hey, what do you think the Bible says about this? Can we, can we look at the Sermon on the Mount and see if the Sermon on the Mount can orient our, our vision or our understanding of this topic? And why I say this is because you might be wrong. You might be the one who's in faults here. Um, they might be wrong, or it might be something that the Bible doesn't speak very clearly about. But that that once you've listened, that has to be the next guiding step is saying the gospel is a politics, so I have to let it shape my discipleship. If we can't agree on that, that the Bible needs to shape it, then you're not in a church, you're in a country club. Yeah, that's right. I, it's Jesus is Lord, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. that bottom line. That's the way I feel like if we're if we're both willing to say he's the he's the king, he's the ultimate authority. Well, then we got something to work with and we can the other stuff we can deal with. I don't know though. I think it's confusing to people to say it is a politic because I feel like it's I, I haven't read Andy Stanley's book, and I like your I like your take on it. But even when he's like when Satan offers him all the power in the world and he declines. Like and then and then he's in front of Pilate and Pilate is just like, I don't even get this. Like, I don't see you making a power play here. I don't see you in Pilate's terms of power. Like this doesn't even make any sense. It's he's contemptuous. Like you're not even after the right goal here. We're yeah. all about power and you don't you don't even seem like you want it. Yeah. Like, and so I feel like when we say it's a politic, it is, but it stands, it, it seems like to me, it stands in contrast to the whole idea that power and coercion is where it's at. I, I totally agree. In fact, I, I would say that's one of the fundamental truths of Jesus's politics. I mean, his politics upside down, right? This is, this is what he does yeah. all the time. He has yeah. the kingdom, everything is turned upside down. So in the world, it's, Hey, if you want to uh, make change, you have to 
grab the ring of power, right? I mean, this is right. this is what J.R. Tolkien got so right, was yeah. the temptation for Boromir was, I have to take the ring of power, and then I can fight evil. We always think if we take the power, we can yeah. fight the evil, but of course the power ends up changing us instead. And so Jesus's politics shows us a different way. He says, no, reject the power, say no to the affluence, say no to it, and, and instead identify with the weak, with the poor, with those who are in need. He says, flip it upside down. And what happens when you do this, we can look at it throughout history is is somehow in god's bizarre upside down economy you actually end up bringing about the change that you thought you could bring about with the right. ring of power right. and so i guess what i would say is this if you think of politics as a power game which is one definition of politics um yes it doesn't have a politic because it's it's playing a different game um yeah. if you right. think of politic in a more classical sense yes. um Right, as, right. as 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 how we organize ourselves, our communities, our societies. I'll read you this quote. It's in the book. This is by a guy named Lee Camp, who I really like. Um, this is what he says a politic is, and this is what I mean when I say a politic. He says a politic is an all-encompassing manner of communal life that grapples with all the questions the classical art of politics has always asked. How do we live together? How do we, How do we deal with offenses? How do we deal with money? How do we deal with enemies and violence? How do we arrange marriage and families and social structures? How is authority mediated, employed, ordered? How do we rightfully order passions and appetites? And much more besides, but most especially add these, where is human history headed? What does it mean to be human? And what does it look like to live in a rightly ordered human community that engenders flourishing justice and the peace of God? Yeah. Now, I wish I was smart enough to write a paragraph that, that, that intelligent. I'm not. But that for me is what I mean when I say Jesus has a politic. He has something to he has an answer to every one of those questions that that Lee Camp asks. And so does Joe Biden, and so does Donald Trump, and so do all the partisans in our day. Just the problem is their answer is wrong. Yes. Uh, it's not, I shouldn't say wrong. It's it's not entirely right. <laughs> well, right. And I appreciate that. And I love that definition. I I default to the real meaning of it is how do we live together? Mm. And and that's that's the nubbin of that paragraph, but when I, when you say politic or politics in this culture, people are like, okay, it's voting. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the, just where that word goes, I think. So, but I, I, I think you're that. totally right. Yeah. I, I love how you, how you identified it. And in that <laughs> sense, you're, he's, he's all about politics in that sense. Well, I always joke. It's like, who would Jesus vote for? I always ask, that's one of my favorite questions to ask people, you know, they'll tell you to vote for Trump or you wouldn't vote for anyone vote for Biden. It's, it's totally a trick question. They go, well, actually you want to know the truth? Jesus can't vote because he's not a U.S. citizen. Like legally, it's not, he, he, he can't do it. You know, and so like, that just shows you like, if what your politics, if you think politics equals how I vote, the one who's in charge of politics can't even do that. So maybe you need a more expansive vision and definition. So I, I love talking about this with you because I think you can you can go there and I trust the listeners to our podcast to know I'm just I think and out loud sometimes so I can learn. And think <laughs> I I have this vision for believers being this these citizens of another kingdom. And mm. and that's how we occupy this role in culture. They can look at how we do things and just say, that's different. That's weird. They can even have contempt like Pilate did for Jesus. And I wonder if that would happen if we didn't vote. And but I, I'm I'm stuck though because I I do think when people say but there's these issues of justice you have to you have to you can't just abdicate yeah so I'm stuck on that too because I I think about like kids needing protection and there, there are people that want 
want to do harm to the vulnerable. Yeah. And there's only, they have to be restrained. So I'm stuck. Cause I wish, I wish we could just say, let's not vote. Cause I think that'd be kind of beautiful and people could, could look at us as an alternate kingdom. But yeah. what, what do you think about that? <laughs> it, it's a, it's a question I think I get asked most frequently is how should I vote or how do you think about voting? And I, I think I would start by saying that, uh, God gives us all agency and we're responsible for how we use that agency. And so if part of the agency he gives us in our particular time and place as, as members of a democratic republic is voting, yeah. we have to take our voting seriously. Now, for a lot of people, that means you must vote for one of two candidates. Otherwise, you have abdicated. I, I actually just had David French on our podcast recently, and, and he said that he has two things that he thinks about when he votes. Um, one is, do you have policies that I can agree with generally? No one's going to be perfect, but do we have broad agreement? And he goes, two is, is character. Character really matters. It's weird because if I asked you, does, does the character of your manager matter? Everyone's like, yes, absolutely. Does the character of your spouse member matter? Yeah, one hundred percent. Does the character of your of your child's, you know, uh, high school matter? Oh, oh, yeah. But when it comes to the highest offices in the land, all of a sudden, character just get doesn't it done. matter. Yeah, <laughs> just get it done. You know, and we won't vote for someone if their policy is slightly off. Like if you're pro choice and I'm pro life, I won't vote for you. But we 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 will give up on character. To me, that's a tremendous mistake. So, so the first thing I would say is have some categories that you can evaluate. And I think those are two really good categories. Let's talk about policy and let's talk about character. Now, if you're, which often tends to be the case, if you're in a situation where you have two bad choices, the lesser of two evils argument makes no sense to me because guess what? You've just admitted they're both evil. I don't vote for evil. And I think we have to vote for the long game. If we continue to vote for candidates that lack moral fiber, we train the institutions that shape them to continue to give us candidates who lack moral fiber. The only way to speak out is by refusing to vote for them. Or in my case, you want to know how ridiculous I am. This what I'm about to say might tick some people off. You want to know who I voted for in 2020? I can guess. I voted for Kanye West. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. No. You didn't I, guess that. I I did not guess that. No, but remember, this is before some of his more recent shenanigans that, that yeah. he's done. And, and people are like, why did you do that? And I look at him and I give him the, I always give him the same answer. I go, it was a joke. Huh. And that really bothers people. They go, you turned your vote into a joke. And I said, yes, because that election was a joke. So I called it what it was. And and I had the long game in mind. If you don't give me candidates of substance, yeah. both in policy and character, I'll call it a joke. And I don't have to get stressed out because I know the guy on the throne. This world is not going to hell in a handbasket. It's going to resurrection in the hands of Jesus. That's where it's going. So I can be a non-anxious presence. I don't have to freak out about what's happening. And I know like politics is part of how we love our neighbor. And one thing I would say along those exact same lines is where, where I really care about my vote far less than the president is how I vote locally. Yeah. I think that Jesus doesn't want us to telescope our attention to the horse race happening in Washington. I think he wants us far more fixated where we're at. And what that looks like is not just caring about my vote locally. You should be involved in middle institutions. You need to be involved in churches. You need to be involved in the PTA, be involved in school boards, be involved in the in the local uh, small business incubator. Like, find places where you're at and you can produce far more shalom and flourishing where you are by taking all of your federal 
focus and energy and putting it there. And I, and I live this out. It's why I'm on, I'm on my daughter's school board. That That's the reason why is because I truly, truly believe that's where politics actually happens. Politics happens when you are the kind of church like we are that is caring for the refugees, that is caring for the single moms, that is caring for the ex-cons, that is caring for the addicts. That is politics. That is politics. And guess what? That's going to make a far bigger difference in your community than I voted for the right guy every four years. It, it just is. And I think it's where Jesus would have our attention be. Yeah, I feel that way, too, um, because it's like it's like praying for your daily bread. Mm. Like, let me let me be attuned to the things that are right here for the resources I have for today. And not taking on the pressure and the anxiety of the whole world and. It is that we're in a weird place because just being in a democracy, that's strange. <laughs> it, biblically, it's strange. It's very odd. That, yeah, like, very odd. It, it, it's like the Shakespeare thing about, you know, the, the head that wears the crown is heavy. Mm. And we all are wearing this crown. We all think we are, like, because of vote, like, we, like you identified, like, we feel like kingmakers. We feel like we're the ones who are responsible for everything. And that's mm -hmm. a really odd thing. And so in the Bible, it doesn't really address democracy. That was like an Athenian thing that was gone by the time the Romans are around and Paul's writing. It's like, just accept the authority for what it is and then operate this way, you know? And and maybe on some level that, that still works. I, I've been influenced by the work of a thinker named Jacques Ellul, you yeah. a fantastic people are going to freak out when they hear this book name you wrote a fantastic book called christian anarchism or it's christian anarchy it's yeah something like that. yeah yeah uh, which sounds totally insane I'm, I'm 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 not an anarchist i don't go as far as as he does but but one of his contentions is that the reason why paul could live so loosely to the powers at hand um is twofold one he understood that they were animated by demonic powers I mean, it, it, at least in ancient Rome, I mean, like Rome was a god. Roma was a god. Yeah, the, right, the, right. the separation of church and state, that did not exist. You know, these were all one big lump together thing. And, and since he knew that Jesus had already defeated the powers of darkness, he didn't have to freak out about what was happening in Rome. Right. It's like, well, those powers are already on the run. And, 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 and he understood that the state wasn't going to be the primary means by which the love, justice, and mercy of God were going to come to the world. That was going to be the church. And, and so I think there is a, a place for states to create uh, just and ordered societies. I, I like democracies because it's majority rule with minority protection. Like that's a pretty good place to live in general. Um, but I have to remember, yes, politics is part of how we love our neighbor, but our nation state is not going to be the ultimate means by which the love, justice, and mercy of God are going to come into the world. So again, I can live loosely to the political arrangements that I'm in at right. the moment and trust that actually in my church, in my community, that's the means by which God wants to bring about those things. And that's why, again, I said, focus local, focus on what your church can do to change your community, because getting fixated on, on the state and what the state can do, the state's going to do good things. The state's going to do bad things. That's not my, that's not, that's not my thing. My thing is what the church can do through the power of the spirit. Yeah, agreed. I just feel like it's one of those things that's, that ultimately becomes so polarizing, um, mm -hmm. or, or makes people in in our around us so anxious. And you identify that. You talk about three kinds of anxiety in this culture <laughs> because yeah. of our tribalism. And um, you want to talk about that a little bit? Can you over? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I I open up that chapter with the story of a guy named Kelly Donahue. He was a Jeopardy contestant who 
one, three different rounds. And at the end of his third round, he holds up this really awkward looking number three. And uh, people in this elite Facebook group of ex Jeopardy contestants see him holding that up and they, they, they uncover the truth. It is a white supremacy hand signal. And so they scour his Facebook page and they find more proof of his white supremacy. He likes Frank Sinatra, for example. That's how they know. Um, and so they 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 go to Jeopardy and say you got to take this guy down. Jeopardy doesn't listen to them. They go to uh, the uh, the Anti Defamation League, which the ADL. If there is a hint of racism, they will go after you. It, it is a very litigious organization. <laughs> and so they go to the ADL. They show the ADL. The ADL comes back to them and says, um, "Hey, we've, we we looked at the f- footage, and at the end of every victory, he holds up how many hats? After his first victory, he holds up one. After his second victory, he holds up two. After his third victory, he holds up three. And by the way, that's not even the white supremacist hand signal. So you've got that wrong. But the group won't listen. They, they say that the ADL is gaslighting them. That That's how, I mean, I, I guess if you're a Jeopardy contestant, you're really smart. So you're probably hard to convince that you're wrong. But they won't listen. And this poor guy, Kelly Donahue, he, he comes out and I mean, he unequivocally says he's against white supremacy. His life is is wrecked by this. I mean, he's still living under the shadow of public organizations calling him a white supremacist, which in this world is is makes it hard to find a job. There's lots of different things that come out of that. Now, I, I share that story because it shows all these different forms of anxiety. On the one hand, you have the anxiety of the crusaders. That's the Facebook group. These are the people who see injustice and because they're anxious for justice to be done, they will pull out their swords, they'll pull out their weapons, and they will go to task. And often they do so with extreme prejudice. They they, they do not think through how what they're doing is going to affect people, right? But what's motivating them, again, is anxiety. It's fear. I love people. I want to make sure that something right is done. And so, so I want to be empathetic to that. You know, I want right things to be done. I don't want injustice to be perpetrated. There's, there's a real desire there, but because of the anxiety, they can't can't be honest about is this really an injustice am, am i putting a ten dollar offense on a one dollar you know uh, am i putting a ten dollar fine on a one dollar offense there's there's no limits to a crusader's crusade yeah. on the other side you have people like kelly donahue who are the hunted now these are people who actually sincerely have people coming after them um the problem is in kelly donahue's case he was really being hunted in many cases, we feel hunted. We feel anxiety over being hunted when we aren't actually being hunted. When right. I was a little kid, I got chased by this dog in my neighborhood. It was terrifying. I was running away. I'm screaming my brains out. My mom comes <laughs> and she saves me. And then she kneels down. She pets the dog. And my point in that was it was probably like a Pomeranian. It thought it was just playing a game with me. The dog wasn't really a risk. And so when you're really being hunted, fear is a great response. When you're not being hunted, it leaves you screaming in the streets over a Pomeranian chasing you. Right. And that's where I think a lot of people, especially on the right are, is they have this deep sense of I'm being hunted. People are coming after me. And I'm like, are they like, is your job really at risk? Has someone really attacked you in a very big public hurtful way? And oftentimes the answer is like, well, well no, but they could, you know? And so that's the anxiety of the hunted is it's, it's this almost irrational fear of someone's going to come and get me. I think the last anxiety is the anxiety of the bystanders. So this would be the people who uh, probably align with the crusaders in terms of their ideology. Uh, but they see that the crusade is misguided and, and they want to step up and step in and say, hey, this is wrong. We're treating this person wrongly. We're not hearing them. But they never do it because they're afraid. If they do it, they'll come after them. The Crusaders will come after them. And this is one thing. If you talk to people who've been canceled, it happens over and over again. In public, everyone's coming after them. But in private, they get emails, they get calls, they get text messages saying, hey, 
Right. I'm really sorry. I disagree with this. I wish I could do something. And you know what? The the anxiety of the bystanders is, is if I do something, mm-hmm. I will be canceled. Mm-hmm. It actually, in most cases, turns out not to be the case. When the when the bystanders get over their anxiety and they speak out and speak up, it often stops the crusade. It brings reasonableness to the table. And so the bystanders in many ways are the ones who we most need to get over <laughs> their anxiety. And the way I think we get over it, again, is by remembering who's on the throne. I need to do what is just and right. And I can only do that if I remember Jesus is reigning. Jesus is ruling. And if he's in charge, okay, maybe I get canceled. Mm-hmm. Right. That's fine. Like There are worse things that can happen in my life. I am not a persecuted martyred Christian in the first century being chased, being chased by Roman soldiers who want to execute me because I won't say Caesar is Lord. If I get canceled, yes, it's painful. I'm not trying to minimize that, but man, if that's the worst persecution that I face in my life for defending someone who needs to be defended or, or for speaking truth in love and kindness, Hey, that's not the end of the world. And again, to the crusaders, I, I, I just would beg if you're a Christian show mercy, show grace, show forgiveness the kingdom tells us how we treat those who violate and 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 do offenses and it's not this puritanical let's put a, you know a scarlet letter on their chest and then hang them from the gallows approach right uh i like um too how you talked about jesus's tribe mm. and how that is the tribe that is for everybody and we were talking about that the other day on the podcast. I was thinking about how I can disagree vociferously. I can identify evil. I can identify people who've given themselves over to evil and are doing evil. Mm-hmm. And the difference, though, is I still have to love them. And that that's a unique space to be in. That's not uh, loving your enemies is is radical and unique. And it's it's what's supposed to make us different. But I like I like how you put it. I think you said Jesus's tribe is for everybody. I like that. Yeah, I, I one of the things people say is when they start reading the book and they're saying, "Oh, so you think you're not tribal?" And if you read through the book, you'll realize what we actually say is, "Oh no, everybody is tribal. There is no escaping tribalism. The only choice you have is which tribe you will join." Yeah. And the only reason I hesitate not to call Jesus's tribe a tribe is because it's so different than every other tribe out there. Right. You know, a normal tribe says, if you're an outsider, we attack you or we put up a wall and we keep you out in Jesus's tribe. It says, Oh no, there are no walls. Everybody is welcome here. It does not matter your nationality, your ethnicity, your gender, your sexuality. Everybody is welcome to be a part of this tribe. Now, of course, no one stays the same once they enter this tribe. It it does transform you and change you. But gosh, everybody is welcomed into this tribe. But the other thing that makes this tribe different is is that attitude of if you're outside, we're, we're against you. We want to attack you. We want to take what you have. That's what normal tribalism does. And Jesus trains a tribe to do the exact opposite. He says, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to love the outsider. You're supposed to love your enemy. You're supposed to put their interests and needs before your own interests and needs. And so it's like, yes, it's a tribe, but it's the anti-tribal tribe. It's a tribe that says, welcome everyone (laughs) and show love to those who hate you. That that is not what normal tribes do. And yet that's exactly what the Jesus tribe does. And that's why I I say, if you're going to pick a tribe, there's no better tribe to pick than this one. Our podcast sponsor, one of them is Fellowship Home Loans. They're awesome. Mike and Brian 
are fantastic to talk to. Here's their number, 800-804-SAVE, 800-804-SAVE, or just go to fellowshiphomeloans.com. One thing, thing, just to find something to disagree with here um, for fun. uh, Good. You you wrote that in 2012, there was this study done that showed that we're actually closer than we think on big issues. I don't think that's true anymore. <laughs> I, I mean, it may, maybe, maybe 2012. Like, you want the uh, 2022 study? Yeah. Like if you can even look at what Barack Obama had to say in 2008, that he would be branded now, if he said it, as the worst kind of bigot. Like I I think I think we have moved. I think there is a, a seismic shift, and I still love people who disagree with me. But that's that's it's not insignificant. I like so uh, even an understanding about what humans are, mm-hmm. like that's pretty big. But what what do you think about that? Do you think we've kind of moved? Yeah, you know. So I, I would love the twenty twenty two study, and I I wouldn't be shocked if we'd moved even farther apart than we have in twenty twelve. Um, but let's say so, so, you know, in, in, in the studies done by the ANES and what they, what they look at is how far apart Republicans and Democrats are on average from each other. And a score of zero is, uh, Hey, we share everything in common. (laughs) And a score of one would be, we disagree on everything. Americans have never, since they've done the study, and again, the last year was 2012, have never gotten above 0.47. So that means that we agree on more than we disagree on. Um, my guess is if we did it now, you, you're, you're probably right. We probably are a bit more polarized. My guess is that we're still close to the point where at least it's 50, 50, or even if it's not 50, 50, we're, 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 we're really, really close to that. And, and again, I could be totally wrong and I would love to see the data. And if it proved me wrong, I would, I would be thrilled to see it. My, my point in bringing that up wasn't so much, uh, that, Hey, we're not as polarized as we think so much as saying, Hey, the reason why we dislike each other has less to do with um, we can't agree on anything. I mean, e- even if we're at the point where we're at a 0.6 separation, there's still 0.4 that we agree on. <laughs> there's, right. there's still 40% of things that we're on the same page about. And that's a, that's a huge amount of agreement, by the way. That's not a small amount of agreement. Um, but my, my point in saying is that the reason why we become so polarized has less to do with we're changing so much on policy. And I think it has more to do with how we're wired tribally. That that we're wired to want to win, we're wired to want to 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 defeat the enemy, and that's the thing that those parties are playing into. I mean, the Republican platform right now it doesn't even have a platform. Its platform is Donald Trump, right? I, so yeah. m- maybe we are more polarized because I, I don't even know what that means, you well, know. But that's that's where we're at. We give another example on the on the flip side, like you can watch Ronald Reagan clips talking about immigrants, and it's the most gracious, inspiring, like. I can be an American. You can be an American if you come here. I can't go to France and be a Frenchman. I could never be a Frenchman. I could, I can't go to Turkey and become a Turk, but I can come to America and be an American. I think it was one of the last things he said as a president. Yeah. And like it's it's hard to imagine in this environment, just just to find a flip side example, that sort of love for the alien coming from it from that side of the aisle. It's one hundred percent true, and and again, so that's why I'm that's why I'm saying, hey, I think if we yeah. did the study, we would be more more polarized today than than, than we were then. And um, what you're describing is is a fantastic example because you could go to Reagan, you could go to George H. W. Bush, yeah. probably above all of them, George W. Bush, 
as being figures who had this uh, vision of compassionate conservatism that uh, was very welcoming to the the foreigner and, and had this concept that, like you just said, if you come to this nation, you can be one of us. It, it's actually this like strange way that uh, Americanism has historically uh, almost absorbed part of Christianity. And yeah. it's that element of saying everybody's welcome here. But what's fascinating is that now that Christian nationalism is, and people are going to hate that term. I look, just, just go, go look up NatCon 2023. This is the national conservative convention. Uh, they have speakers there ranging from Ron DeSantis to Josh Hawley. So major political figures, they have, uh, people, they have Al Mohler there. So, you know, president of the SBC of the SBC's flagship seminary, they have editors from, you know, first things, world magazine, major Christian institutions, major governmental institutions. They're all getting together the daily wire, like all these people are in one place. And uh, Michael Knowles, who's a Daily Wire person, in his speech um, is is now joining a large group of people which are represented in that crew who are um, rehabilitating Christian nationalism. His talk was all about how Christian nationalism is the traditional moral and political order of the United States. There's a new book by Stephen Wolf coming out called Christian Nationalism. And, and, and why I'm bringing this up is that... Uh, we are probably now on the at the turning point where we're going to start seeing more and more people use this terminology and and Christians have to be vehemently opposed to it for the reasons that you just laid out, which is I have more in common with my Zambian brother in Christ than I do with my American secular uh, counterpart. Yeah, and, and and you can't be a Christian nationalist because we can't be nationalists as Christians because we have a identity which transcends yeah. our nation. We can love our nation, yes. <laughs> we can want the best for our nation, uh, but we cannot be nationalists. It's it's just it's just it's simply not unless we're like heavenly nationalists. You, no, you can be right, that. right, yeah, exactly. So I have to tie my identity to the kingdom of God. That's my identity. That's how I identify. And I love America too. I love it. I, I like, but you're you're right. And whenever somebody takes the word Christian and tacks it on to something else, it devalues how awesome it is to know who the king is. Like it I devalues both things in one in, in one way. You know, like C.S. Lewis, when he talked about nationalism, I love how he framed it because you know what he said was loving your nation is, is like a love of place. It's like a love yeah. of home. I love yeah. the way people right. speak here. I love the way yeah. we live. It's good to and, have that. And the thing about love of home is I can love my home without thinking that my home's better than your home right. or that my home needs to dominate your home or right. that I hate your home as a result, right? That's where nationalism really goes awry is it's this notion um, that uh, my home is supreme. <laughs> Right, right. And it needs to be treated above all others. And there's countless other ways. There's a great book by a guy named Paul Miller that just came out that I would highly recommend reading about Christian nationalism, um, because I do think it's going to be a major thing going forward. I'm, I'm, to be honest, as a pastor, I'm terrified of it uh -huh. because up until now, no one in my church would want to be called a Christian nationalist. About a year from now, I'm expecting that we're going to have a lot of people who self-identify that way because of how these large-scale organizations like NatCon and the SBC and first things, all these magazines, they're, they're all warming. I mean, the, our arena, the editor first things has, has already given defenses of nationalism. So I've it's just, by yeah. that. I've, I've subscribed to first things since 1997, I think, or since 96, yeah. like consistently, I've never not been subscribed. I love the articles about architecture or whatever. Yeah. Since Richard John Newhouse passed away, I'm like, doggone it. We're going, we're going to do this. 
like like not having a transcendent view anymore but getting into that stuff but like we have a pagan left in this country and we have a pagan right Mm -hmm. like yeah that's just that's where we are now so why would i want to identify with that as a believer um we could talk about this forever and i'm sorry i'm talking too much for doing an interview um, no, you're not talking too much at all. I, okay, I love well. the conversation. I, I, I would I would say this, you know, if it's any encouragement to our listeners, um, I, I love the blog Mere Orthodoxy. I think it, in my mind, has taken up the uh, flag, if you will, for what First Things maybe was. You know, yeah. it's actually like First Things was very, it was Catholic in voice, but it was very ecumenical. It brought in lots yes. of voices. Right. Mere Orthodoxy has done a really good job. And they actually also have their, their own magazine. So, you know, you might consider checking that out if you're <laughs> if you're yeah. interested um i i would highly recommend their magazine um because again i mean first things world magazine i mean it's it's been tragic to watch what happened there very similar you know people leaving because it's 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 taking this tone this culture warrior mindset and is leaving behind what it was for you know decades i went to uh i'm a english premier league fan i went to a chelsea game in london a few weeks ago and uh, it's such a tribal experience. Like uh, the crowd is electric. Like it is loud and intense. Like the it's deep seated. And we we were playing we like I like I'm we, uh, but it's my team. We were playing uh, West Ham, which is a from the other side of London. So different colors, all that sort of stuff. Just deep seated hatred. It used to be like a violent scene years ago, but they've they've gotten over that. But uh, it was so wonderful because you feel it on the underground, the sense of unity, like you're taking the train and everybody's got their Chelsea jerseys on or whatever. If it, It's wonderful. But then on the way back, I sat across on the on the London Underground. My wife and I sat across from a guy who was wearing a West Ham jersey and he was drinking a Stella Artois on the underground, which I thought was interesting. It was just like... <laughs> I said, man, tough game because Chelsea won. It was a very debatable call that they won on by the refs. I think I think West Ham got ripped off. Um, and he was like, oh, that's life. That's football. That's what happens. And we had a laugh. And it was really just wonderful. So it was mm-hmm. like you had, you had that sense of togetherness, but also this – it was really – it was just – to me, I remember that being really special, like uh, his – graciousness and yeah. losing yeah and we're all wearing our colors and everything and uh i we just felt like friends it was just neat i don't know why i wanted to tell you that story but i just it was such a vivid well i think, I think it goes back yeah. to that notion of what c.s lewis said of loving your home bingo that's it that's it loving right. the homes of others right um, so i don't have to i can be proud of being german without invading france yes germans stop it like <laughs> but that, that really is true a sense of place a sense of togetherness, but it doesn't, have, it doesn't transcend everything because it's put in the proper order. He said the same thing. I mean, Lewis talked about patriotism being a good thing. It, family is a good thing, but it becomes an idol. It's we're, we're, we're dead. Yeah. He, he talks about how patriotism is scaffolding for sacrificial love in a secular society. And what he means, I think, is it's easy to love yourself. It's actually relatively easy to love your family, um, but patriotism teaches you to love your 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 like your like nationed 
uh, neighbor. In other words, I will I will be sacrificial They're for the sake of my neighbor, whether that's I'm going to go to war to defend my nation or it's right. I'm going to give my money so that you uh, can have a better life uh, or serve in this place so that, you know, whatever it is, he, he saw it as, as actually scaffolding for self-sacrificial love at its best. And yeah. I love that vision. I think that's a great way of thinking about what patriotism should be. It's this way of saying I'm willing to give of myself for my, my my neighbor, but that doesn't mean that I, I I have to be against someone who is not in my nation, or that I wouldn't give up myself for them as well. Right. There needs to be a, a way that we can express that. Like if I'm rooting for America in the World Cup, like that doesn't make me an ugly person. Like we we should have something, that, and it doesn't make a Brazilian ugly for rooting for Brazil. Like no, just there's there's allegiances that fall well below our allegiance to God that are a good thing. In their absolutely yeah absolutely and, and and you know back to the idea of of christian nationalism what what my fear and I, I i really want to talk more about this publicly my fear is that what i'm seeing from some people is that uh it's like a cult like there's like a first layer thing and the first layer is always very credible and believable but then there's a second layer where things get wild yeah that's um, right and that's what's happening with Christian nationalism is what Michael Knowles attempted to do at NatCon. So what I hear people saying is they say, hey, being a Christian nationalist just means that you love your country and you think that uh, the Christian moral order is a good thing and that Christians should have a space in the public square. Yeah, That okay. is not Christian nationalism. That is classical liberalism. Okay, mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is the notion that uh, you cannot – it's it's indivisibility and supremacy. It is You cannot divide – uh, culture, uh, religion, moral order, uh, you, you can't divide those things from, from one another. So, so, so our, I mean, and by the way, the book that just came out, Christian nationalism basically starts with a very, I think, racist quote about how tribalism is what makes us human. Ugh, ugh. <laughs> um, it, it, but that's the idea is look, we need this this white anglo tradition you can't pull liberalism and democracy any of those things out of it you can't pull religion it's all one whole they're all they're all indivisible and of course there's tons of research that shows that's that's bunk you can pull any of those things out the bible the gospel can go anywhere actually liberalism and democracy has been proven to go uh, many different places Um, but the other side is supremacy which is saying it's not just that those things are indivisible it's that they are supreme over all others they should be given priority over all others so if you are a secular non-anglo non-christian that's fine you can be here but know that you should be in second place hmm. and that's illiberal and it's damnable and it's not christian mm-hmm. um and that's what worries me because that's the second layer right the first layer is just love your country you know the, the the real deal is what i just described i'm not i'm not straw manning this is taken from research but from the people who say they are christian nationalists and so again I, I I I think that's why you know work like what you've done in your book and my book is so important is right now we have to turn down the temperature, help Christians pull away their allegiance from these partisan groups because especially on the right right now, there's going to be a a black hole vortex that starts sucking people in because we're scared. It, it is it's it's anxiety and it's anxiety producing. It's a yes making it worse. And I, my thing is too. I was talking with a friend the other day. And he's backing off of a bunch of conspiracy theories. He was a liberal. Um, mm-hmm. And then he thought the media was lying during COVID about a bunch of stuff. And it turned him into the uh, QAnon. Like he started buying into it. And now he's backing off that stuff. And he's returning to faith. Wow. And uh, Praise God. Yeah, but I was just like, bro. When you, I didn't say bro. I, I don't know why I said bro now. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to sound cool. Yeah, bro. Um, like, don't you want peace? 
like yeah. all all the theories, all the arguing, all the Facebook discussions, all the which he was engaging in. Like in the end, like in the end, you get one life. Don't you want peace? And all that stuff is taking whether it's right, left, whatever. It's 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 wasting you. Yeah, and it's, it's like, so like true. God, Jesus it, gives us peace. I leave with I leave my peace with you. It was like, yeah, that's a nice <laughs> gift, but I'll turn that in. I'd rather have Fox News, or I'd rather have the culture war. Yeah, I'd rather have that. Like, that's too. Bad. I think that's how people feel, though. I, th I think people feel people feel as though things are worse now than they've ever been before. We're in the middle of wartime, and in wartime, normal ethics like loving your neighbor, you know, right. blessed are the meek, turning right. the other cheek, that kind of stuff. That that that's fine when it's not wartime, but now is wartime. You can't; those things don't work anymore. And the problem with this view is: let's start with the view that hey, it's harder to be a Christian now than it's ever been. Really? Oh, yeah. You go back in to 1952. I want you to go to the biggest city in Alabama, and I want you to say, hey, um, this segregation stuff. This preventing people from voting and using tests to keep people from voting stuff. This uh, put them on the back of the bus stuff. This stuff is immoral. It's unchristian. What do you think happens? Do you think it's easy to be a Christian in 1952? Mm -hmm. No. Right. Right. I'll pick right now because I can say whatever it is I want to say about whatever issues are out there. And again, maybe the worst thing, maybe the worst thing that happens to me is I get kind of canceled. Maybe. Right. Like seriously they, they would sick dogs on you they would take fire hydrants and blow them at you they would try to execute you they would potentially try to lynch you if you had those views publicly and you held them as a christian so really it's harder to be a christian right now than it's ever been in in american history i i, I don't buy that but let's just go even more fundamental to is it even in 1952 is, is it harder to be a christian then than it was when the new testament was written these books were written to people who were being martyred for their faith right right that's the context of love your neighbor, turn the other cheek, blessed are the meek. That's the context is people who are being martyred left and right for their faith. So we aren't being martyred. Really, we're the persecution we're experiencing is, is quite light compared to what, what the early church experienced. And yet we're in wartime and those ethics don't work. Yeah, it's really weird because when you have a childlike faith or you have a there's a simplicity to it like no I'm a, I'm a resident of this kingdom a lot of people think you're being naive like but you don't understand all the stuff that's going on did you see the legislation did you see what was on you know the yeah. media? like no, no no I know all that mm. I, I do but this there's it's uh I'm fond of quoting Paul Ricoeur but he talked about there being a second naivete at the far side of complexity mm. like you know no, no, this this joy that I have this sense of well-being and non-anxiousness isn't from being naive it's from knowing more. Right? <laughs> it's exactly like, right. It's like knowing something. You get through all the complexity and you get down to the the bedrock of reality. And yes. right there, smack under your hands, under your feet. If you're on all fours, terrified, everything, you realize, oh my gosh, I'm sitting on the solid, firm ground of yeah. King Jesus, whose reign will never end and against whom the gates of hell cannot defeat. They cannot win. They, they cannot conquer. And when you get there, you've you've come to the deepest truth that you can possibly come to. Yeah. Um, God's sovereignty, God's reign, God's promises that cannot be undone. 
that's that's the base level of reality and that sets us free from so much of this fear that justifies terrible behavior and that makes our lives miserable like you said like we're offered peace and we're like give me fox news come yeah, on i'd rather have this <laughs> like no don't turn that in but yeah it's not naivete it's it's a deeper knowing i think yes leaning into that i'll, I'll leave it on that I, I hope people get the book talk about it in group it's very important because like what Patrick is saying, what, if you're in a conservative church where people are starting to just trade it in for politics or a divided church or a liberal church, like to be able to talk about, no, no, what is our transcendent? Um, what is what are we supposed to be doing? What are what's our deepest allegiance is really healthy. So this this book will prompt that. And I really appreciate that. It's tough to write it. You guys did a great job. Um, kind of you. So I, I'm rooting for it. It's called Truth Over Tribe. And it, the subtitle is Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. Patrick, thanks so much, man. Totally love talking to you. I could talk forever. So I know. I could keep going forever, too. It's been <laughs> great being on the show. I love the show. Um, I'm so appreciative of you, your work, and um, the, what it's doing for, I know people who are listening to this. I, I just encourage, I, I think a lot of people who probably listen to this and listen to our podcast and other things, often feel alone and just realizing, no, you're not alone. There's lots of people who want to put their allegiance in the right place. So anyways, I'm grateful for you and your work and everybody listening. Thanks, man. God bless. The Brant and Sherry Oddcast, sponsored by Fellowship Home Loans. To order Brant's latest book, The Men We Need, or to stream Sherry's play, The Bold and the Sanctified, go to BrantHanson.com.